Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to CBS News Roundup ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Coming up, the former leader of the far-right Proud Boys and three others convicted for their roles in the insurrection at the Capitol. January 6th will be a day in infamy. A series of mass shootings wound the nation. We have a national epidemic on gun violence in America. In the Kaleidoscope with Allison Keyes segment, a survey shows the devastating effect of the political climate in the nation on certain young people. Nearly one in three LGBTQ young people said their mental health was poor most of the time or always. I'm Allison Keyes in the Washington Bureau. Four members of the far-right Proud Boys Thursday were convicted in federal court in the longest and biggest trial over the January 6th attacks. For four months, federal prosecutors highlighted their role in the insurrection, claiming they did it for a president for whom they were willing to use violence to keep in office. CBS's Scott McFarlane. It was one of the darkest days in American history. And federal prosecutors cast the five Proud Boys as leaders of the mob responsible, assembling a fighting force of 100 members that considered themselves Donald Trump's army. And we fight. We fight like hell. Marching straight to the Capitol that morning as then-President Trump was speaking, some of them the first to break through police barricades. January 6th will be a day in infamy. The jury convicted four of the five, including former one-time leader Enrique Tarrio, of seditious conspiracy, plotting to overthrow the government and several other charges. The fifth, Dominic Pizzola, who used a police riot shield to smash a Capitol window and lead rioters inside, was convicted of obstructing an official proceeding. I promised that the Justice Department would do everything in its power to hold accountable those responsible for the heinous attack. Tario, a one-time aide to Trump ally Roger Stone, was found guilty even though he wasn't even in Washington on the 6th, directing his colleagues remotely from a Baltimore hotel. That night he messaged them, make no mistake, we did this. Legal experts say Tario's conviction in particular will impact special counsel Jack Smith's probe into Donald Trump. It also will serve to empower the special counsel as he further investigates and potentially indicts others who may be responsible for the other schemes to overthrow the peaceful transfer of power in the 2020 presidential election. During the trial, prosecutors linked the Proud Boys to former President Trump, playing this clip from a 2020 presidential debate. Proud Boys, stand back and stand by. That moment changed my life forever. Proud Boy Jeremy Bertino became a star witness for the prosecutors, testifying the group wanted an all-out revolution and to stop the transfer of power. I think these guys got what they deserved. Uh, you lead an attempted coup and you go to jail. 
On the seditious conspiracy charge alone, these four men face a maximum of 20 years in prison. And it's worth noting, so far, the Department of Justice has secured a partial or full conviction in every January 6th case to go to a jury. Scott McFarland, CBS News, Washington. Now to a series of mass shootings from Oklahoma to California's Mojave Desert to Cleveland, Texas and South Georgia. CBS's Jeff Begay has covered a shooting rampage in Atlanta this week that left at least one dead and led to an eight-hour manhunt before the suspect was caught. He was supposed to appear in court on uh, Thursday. However, he waived his right to appear in court, but he's still being held without bail awaiting a next court appearance. But for the families of the victims, of course, you had five people shot, one murdered, the others wounded, all women who worked in this medical building. Uh, The families of these victims are are obviously looking for answers. Now, the mother of the suspect says that he was frustrated, upset with the kind of medical care he was getting. He uh, suffers, according to the mother, from anxiety and depression, and he was looking for treatment and medication and wasn't getting the answers that he wants. So let me ask you, Jeff, this is one in just a whole series of shootings over the last week, right? There was the four killed in Georgia, the four killed in Mojave, the six killed, and then seven if you count the shooter in Oklahoma. Why have things been so bad recently? Is there is there something going on? You know, people are frustrated because, yeah, how do you break this cycle? It just seems to happen over and over and over again. And the question is, how do you stop it? Is it tougher gun laws? Is it, uh, you know, finding more resources to address the mental health issues of people in the community? You know, there, there are a lot of questions about how you break this awful, tragic, unnecessary cycle of violence that we're seeing in this country. And I think it's something that lawmakers at some point are going to have to do more to address because we're actually running into situations now where we, uh, the media gets to the scene of one of these mass shootings and you're, you're looking for witnesses. And it turns out that you talk to people who witness one mass shooting after being caught up in another mass shooting in another big story that we've covered and so you're, you're just running into people who've been in multiple mass shootings can you imagine the horror of something like that and having to live with the images of something like that cbs's jeff begays the head of the cdc dr rochelle walensky is stepping down saying the waning of the COVID 19 pandemic is a good time for a transition this is a who ended the global emergency status for the deadly illness The World Health Organization says while the pandemic is not over, it no longer qualifies as an emergency. The announcement marks a symbolic end to the pandemic that has killed at least 7 million people worldwide. The head of the agency says he would not hesitate to reconvene experts to reassess the situation if a COVID resurgence once again puts the world in peril. Linda Kenyon, CBS News. There's a lot of Star Wars love this week. Friday was Revenge of the Fifth, but there's more. 
The late Carrie Fisher finally got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in Los Angeles. Her former co-stars, friends, and daughter, Billy Lord, were there. She was a closeted quadruple threat. She could sing, she could dance, she could act, and she was an absolutely beyond brilliant writer. Luke Skywalker himself, actor Mark Hamill. I know it's sad that she's not with us today. That would have made it perfect. But she wouldn't want us to be sad. She'd want us to have fun. What is it they've sent us? Hope. Fisher played Princess Leia in Star Wars and is still one of the biggest and most beloved characters in the franchise. Somebody get this big walking carpet out of my way. And what better way to honor her than on Star Wars Day? May the 4th be with you. The unofficial holiday originated from the first film, A New Hope, back in 1977. Fisher died in 2016. She was 60 years old. Monica Ricks, CBS News. Coming up, increasing worries at the border. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas in South Texas Friday is saying he needs a larger budget to manage asylum seekers. Advocates fear crossings will spike next week as a pandemic-era policy expires. It's a familiar scene in the border town of El Paso, Texas. People desperately escaping violence and poverty, facing uncertainty, waiting in groups, crowding sidewalks, hoping for a chance for a new home with nothing but the clothes on their backs and their children at their side. This mother of two crossed the border with her one and three-year-old. No family in the U.S., only friends. And she's hoping to get to Ohio, where she plans to find any job she can to support her two girls. Shelters like the Sacred Heart receive a majority of their funding from private donations. With little government assistance, charities are stepping in to provide basics like food and blankets. At night, the blankets are used for warmth, but during the day, they're used to block the West Texas sun, like this blanket right here, which is from the American Red Cross. Many of the migrants have been on the streets for days, but some say it's better than the life they left behind. Title 42, the pandemic-era policy that allows the government to expel migrants to prevent the spread of COVID, will expire next week. Customs and Border Patrol officials say when that happens, there could be as many as 10,000 border crossings each day, nearly doubling the daily average in March. This is really not an El Paso issue. It's an uh, international migration issue. Father Rafael Garcia runs the Sacred Heart Shelter. He says his staff can only do so much for the nearly 1,400 migrants who cross into El Paso every day. We're focusing on women and children mainly. The need is overwhelming. Garcia fears the scene from six months ago is already repeating itself, and it'll only get worse once Title 42 expires. El Paso County Judge Ricardo Samaniego says the federal help isn't enough, and the governor doesn't coordinate. Are you getting any help from the state? 
That's the missing component. If we don't do this properly, it's going to impact the entire nation. Omar Villafranca in El Paso, Texas. Now to horse racing, where there are worries ahead of Saturday's Kentucky Derby. At least four horses have died. The recent deaths of four horses at Churchill Downs is casting a shadow over this year's Kentucky Derby. This is a coincidence. I mean, you know, horses do get hurt occasionally, but but to have four or, or whatever the number is right now in, in so few a days is very unusual. Two of the deaths involve horses trained by Safi Joseph Jr., a famous trainer. He says it's not clear what happened. Blood work revealed nothing out of the ordinary. Two other horses, including Derby contender Wild on Ice, had to be euthanized after getting hurt. Horses are, are putting out everything they have and they're, you know, they're going upwards of 40 miles an hour. Churchill Downs released a statement saying, while a series of events like this is highly unusual, it is completely unacceptable. We take this very seriously and acknowledge that these troubling incidents are alarming and must be addressed. I think we're just running into a bad streak here. I think you'll see it play out where we go for a long time with no, with no injuries and no, and no, no deaths. So. Uh, hopefully, anyway. The situation brings back painful memories from 2019, when 42 horses died at California's Santa Anita Park. Those incidents did lead to some safety reforms. Astrid Martinez, CBS News. One of the strongest contenders in the 149th running of the Roses Saturday is an unlikely favorite. From the hustle and bustle of the nation's capital to the serenity of a Virginia farm. I'm Gator. You got your big head in the middle of everything. A high-powered attorney has come full circle. <laughs> Amy Moore retired from practicing law in 2016 and moved to Southgate Farm, but says life has not slowed down very much. Well, it hasn't been too much of a retirement because it's a fairly demanding job, but it's a much, uh, much more a much less stressful job. Moore grew up around horses and started riding at six years old. But once her career picked up, she had to put her passion on pause. After a few years, I got too busy to have anything to do with horses. After leaving law, Moore says she went over budget buying her first horse named Queen Caroline. Taking that bet has led to this weekend's odds on favorite to win the Kentucky Derby. You don't wake up and think you've bred a grade one winner right off the bat. That wasn't a feeling you had. No, no, I hoped he would be successful. Forte was Moore's first full bred from Queen Caroline, and now Moore says she's feeling a different type of stress, but it's all worth it. I've enjoyed it. You may change your mind when you're watching Forte race. Well, that might that be That may stressful. be pretty stressful. <laughs> Moore is hoping for a hero's return to the farm for Forte, but says she's already filled with pride. It's uh, kind of a dream come true for me. Whether he wins or loses, I think he's done a lot. He's been very successful. I'm very proud of him. And the pride is on full display all over the walls of her office. We're running out of room. As more hopes for another win following the most exciting two minutes in sports. At Southgate Farm in Millwood, Virginia, Nicole D'Antonio, CBS News. More pressure on Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas over a new ProPublica report. The report says Harlan Crow paid tuition at boarding schools in Georgia and Virginia for the then teenage grandnephew of Justice Clarence Thomas. Democrats say Thomas should have disclosed those payments, which went directly to the schools and in Georgia ran more than $6,000 a month as a gift. Any other judge in America looking at that set of circumstances would realize that that breaks the rules. 
and the court has to address this problem. Republicans claim it's a political effort to undermine Thomas. This is part of a 32-year smear campaign that uh, started with his confirmation hearing. Thomas's defenders say look at the rules, which require disclosure of gifts to a son, daughter, stepson, or stepdaughter, not extended family members, even though Thomas had legal custody of the grandnephew. In a statement, Crow said it's disappointing that those with partisan political interests would try to turn helping at-risk youth with tuition assistance into something nefarious or political. How low can the court go? The report comes in the wake of a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing this week that focused in part on earlier reports from ProPublica that Crow paid for luxury vacations for the Thomas family and bought property from the family where Thomas's mother still lives. Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski has introduced legislation with Independent Senator Angus King for the court to adopt a formal code of conduct. You create your code of conduct. You publicize it. You share it. You post it. But you create it. Now, the court has a more informal code of conduct, and the justices say they also follow rules that the lower court judges follow. But senators say they want something more formal with teeth, a way of enforcing complaints against the justices. We reached out to Justice Thomas, and he had no response. Jan Crawford, CBS News, the Supreme Court. Coming up, an ex-Marine is killed in Ukraine. He's like, look what they're doing to these people. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. In Ukraine, heavy fire this week as Russia drills down on civilian targets. This is Russia's main mercenary group, says it is pulling out of Bakhmut next week. CBS's Charlie Daggett. We've been reporting all week how Russia has intensified attacks here. We'll get this statistic from the U.S. State Department. Since May 1st, Russia has launched more than 145 airstrikes across Ukraine. That's one missile, drone or bomb every hour, 24 hours a day for four days straight. A tense moment in the skies over Kyiv, a drone spotted overhead in a capital bracing for Russian retaliation. A Stinger missile shoots it out of the sky to the cheers of glory to Ukraine. Ukrainian defense officials later said it was one of their own which had gone rogue. But in a city that's been targeted by Russian drones and missiles several nights this week, residents are understandably jittery. Especially after the attempted drone strike at the Kremlin, whoever was behind it. U.S. officials tell CBS News they believe the drones were locally controlled, but that doesn't rule out Ukrainian involvement. Maxim Muzika designs and operates attack drones for the Ukrainian army. It's 100% local. It's obviously, it's uh, from inside of Russia. Ahead of the counteroffensive, cracks are beginning to show in Russia's defenses. Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner mercenary group, posted this rant overnight, standing over several rows of dead Russian fighters. Here are the guys from Wagner who died, he shouted. Their blood is still warm. He tears into Russia's defense minister and the Russian general leading the war in Ukraine. Shouting, these are fathers and sons. Where is their ammunition? The Wagner group has waged much of the heaviest fighting in this war. Losing that support now would deal a critical blow to Putin at the worst possible time. Now for a look at the cost of the Russian war in this nation. 
26-year-old Marine veteran Cooper Andrews was killed on the outskirts of Bakhmut last week as he was helping to evacuate civilians. He joined the Foreign Legion in Ukraine to continue what his mother, Willow Andrews, tells us was a life of service. They were trying to get people out of, basically, I guess that was a corridor to get people out of the city and fight back against the Russians while doing it. I read somewhere that a local pastor says that your son felt he had a calling to do this. Did he talk to you about that? Was that John Lenz who said that? Yes. He met with John the day before, and actually I had conversations with Cooper about, because, you know, I'm a mom. It's like, how do you spend this and manipulate it not for your kid to go? But we talked about, and we actually had a conversation about Hemingway and fighting fascism. And my reaction to it was like, fine, you're going to be driving an ambulance. And he said, no, mom, I probably won't be driving an ambulance. And I said, I know, I get it. So I I know like what was in his heart. And he's like, look what they're doing to these people. And I was like, I know. And one thing Cooper said was like, mom, I'm doing it because I'm able-bodied and capable of doing it. And it's something that needs to be done. People need to do this. Tell us a little bit about your son. I know he was a former Marine. Well, never a former Marine. He was a Marine, but he was also a firefighter. What what kind of man was he? When we talked about the whole firefighter thing, I just thought it was kind of crazy and reckless. And he said, no, mom, because like people are losing their homes. And it's like, it might, and I think he felt like he's capable of going into the wilderness where other people, because he was a Boy Scout, he and so he's like, I will go and save people. And his attitude on being a Marine that we talked about was based on humanitarian rights. The Marines can be the first people in there to aid people. And he also was helpful to hungry kids in Cleveland, right? Yes. Super did, like, you know, hungry kids. And one of the things I remember him saying to me at one point is like, Mom, I will never complain to you about what breakfast is. Mom, I will never complain to you what you're feeding me because that was like, I guess, the beginning of his venture into feeding kids because he felt like he never had to, he never had to complain about where his next milk was coming from because it was clear to him what people actually really needed. I wonder if you hope that his life and his commitment to caring will teach this to other people that might think be sitting at home thinking, what can I do in this battle? I think it would be great if people just could see like even the little things he did, they can do those little things. Cooper in his eyes never did anything above and beyond. Cooper did the status quo and we look at what Cooper did and we see him going above and beyond. But Cooper's level of thinking status quo, no big deal, was what the things that Cooper did. That was Willow Andrews, whose son Cooper was killed in Ukraine. There's a GoFundMe to raise money for causes that he cared about. Now to London, where King Charles III is being crowned on Saturday. CBS's Ian Lee has been covering all of the pomp and circumstance and quirky fun surrounding the historic event. Royal rehearsals have been running around the clock. For the dawn of a new era in Britain. God save the king! (laughs) Many have been camping out. If you could say anything to the king, what would you like to say? I would like to say thank you for what you've done up to now. 
and good luck. Students from the King's former elementary school are already celebrating. King Charles was the first monarch to be educated outside the palace. It's just so fun to think the king went to our school, like he's worn our uniform. There's perhaps nothing more British than pulling a pint. Unless it's poured in the name of the king. It's probably the, the best ingredients we've used in any beer so far. To honor the new monarch, Windsor and Eaton Brewery brewed Return of the King. We've celebrated the Queen for so many years and we're so used to that that suddenly we've now got a king and, yeah, Return of the King. But there's more to this beer than the bottle. This was barley grown on the royal farm here in, in Windsor. The organic ale also captures the king's love of nature. He was at the forefront of making people aware about the environment way before anyone really came about and started talking about it. Does it taste regal? It does taste regal, very much so. So it's golden, which already inspires regal themes. Um, it's, it's bright, it's clear, it's smooth, it's classy. And it's being brewed just a stone's throw from Windsor Castle. Have you had anyone come down from the castle to try it? From the people I've met from the castle who have tried it, they very much enjoyed it. That's CBS's Ian Lee who reports brewers hope the whole nation will raise a glass. Coming up in the Kaleidoscope with Allison Keys segment, the risk to LGBTQ young people. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Welcome to the Kaleidoscope with Allison Keys segment, where every week we discuss issues including gender. This week we're looking at the mental health of LGBTQ young people, which is at risk according to a national survey of more than 28,000 between 13 and 24 by the Trevor Project. Most report verbal harassment at school and nearly one in three say their mental health is poor most of the time. The LGBTQ nonprofit advocacy group's vice president of research, Renita Nath, says the current political climate is an issue as well as a large number of anti-LGBTQ bills um, this year, you know, most of which specifically target uh, transgender and non-binary young people. Um, and more than, you know, 600 bills um, have been in introduced across uh, a majority of state legislatures. Uh, more than 30 have passed. And, you know, from our research, we know that this record number of anti-LGBTQ bills and debates um, are negatively impacting LGBTQ young people's mental health. And, you know, that's specifically what we asked about in our uh, 2023 U.S. National Survey that is um, being released. You know, nearly one in three LGBTQ young people said their mental health was poor most of the time or always due to anti-LGBTQ policies and legislations. Um, so, you know, those are very concerning. And, you know, while more than a dozen states have passed laws banning and or criminalizing the provision of age-appropriate transgender medical care to minors, our research finds, you know, just a small percentage of transgender and non-binary young people surveyed were receiving this care. So, you know, according to our research, 11% of transgender and non-binary young people reported being on gender-affirming hormones, and 2% reported taking puberty blockers. You know, yet 65% of transgender and non-binary young people who were on gender-affirming hormones were somewhat or very concerned about losing access to this care. Uh, 
But I also do want to share like there's a glimmer of hope. We found that laws that protect LGBTQ young people from the dangerous and discredited practice of conversion therapy, like the one recently signed in Minnesota, you know, serve as uh, as a source of hope for LGBTQ young people. Uh, You know, 79 percent of LGBTQ young people said hearing about potential state and local laws trying to ban conversion therapy made them feel a little or a lot better. And the Trevor Project is characterizing this as both a public health crisis and a hostile political climate. What are people saying to you? And I don't mean just the percentages, but what are you hearing from people about this legislation that's out there? Well, from a from research perspective, we're hearing that, you know, the, the hostile political climate and increase in anti-LGBTQ policies you know, are, you know, exacerbating victimization and barriers to affirming physical and mental health care. Um, you know, LGBTQ young people face unique risk factors for suicide, such as victimization based on their sexual orientation or gender identity. And, you know, uh, from our research, LGBTQ young people who experienced anti-LGBTQ victimization reported more than twice the rate of attempting suicide in the past year, you know, compared to those who didn't have these anti-LGBTQ experiences. So I think this national rhetoric is really influencing, um, you know, you know, is really uh, contributing to what we're seeing in terms of anti-LGBTQ victimization. And I know that there has been an increase in the number of transgender women, particularly black women, who have been killed over the last year. Can you compare these numbers this year to what you were seeing last year? Right. So, you know, overall, LGBTQ young people are reporting high rates of suicide risk, but that these numbers are higher among, you know, transgender, non-binary and people of, of, of color. So, you know, those numbers have stayed high among people of color compared to um, uh, LGBTQ young people uh, who are not people of color. What do you suggest to young people that are experiencing anxiety, that are experiencing considering attempting suicide and who are just generally scared to death about what's going to happen to them in this climate? I think, you know, you you need to reach out for help. I think that that's, that's important. Help is out there for you. Um, you know, the Trevor Project offers a suite of 24-7 crisis intervention and suicide prevention programs, including, you know, Trevor Lifeline, Trevor Text, and Trevor Chat, as well as the world's largest safe space social networking site for LGBTQ young people, which is Trevor Space. So young people can reach out to one of Trevor's trained counselors via phone, text, or chat by visiting the trevorproject.org forward slash get help. And, you know, I think reach out to those services immediately. Let me ask you something. I'm, I'm curious if you can help our listeners who are not part of this community understand why the health care for transgender people is so important, why the don't say gay bills are so terrifying to people. Can, can can you speak to me on a personal level about that? From our research with 28,000 plus LGBTQ young people, you know, the survey results are clear that most LGBTQ young people reported, you know, symptoms of anxiety and depression in the last year. You know, we're looking at numbers around like 67% for anxiety, uh, 54% reported symptoms of depression. These are very, uh, these are very high numbers. And, you know, what's perhaps most notable is that, um, 81% of LGBTQ young people wanted mental health care, but, you know, more than half were not able to get the mental health care um, they wanted. Uh, 
And when we asked about what are the barriers to, to getting mental health care, you know, the four top barriers were, you know, fears about talking about their mental health concerns to a provider, concerns about having to get parents permission, afraid they wouldn't be taken seriously and a lack of affordability. And so, you know, they're not able to get the help that they need. And, you know, you know, that's a problem. We need to have le legislations and bills and policies um, that create safe and affirming spaces for LGBTQ young people uh, and also where there are systems in place so they can seek the support they need by providers who are, you know, competent in providing um, care to LGBTQ people. I know you're giving me numbers for a survey, but I am curious, and you don't have to do this if you don't want to, but I'm curious, how do you personally feel about the legislation that's out there? Is it is it affecting you and your life? Yes, of course. I'm I'm a mother of two children. Um, it's, you know, it's something I'm seeing when at the playgrounds, I'm seeing, um, you know, in terms of anti-LGBTQ victimization, I'm seeing the rhetoric um, come to my home from my children who are talking about it. I am seeing um, you know, that this is disturbing my kids, um, you know, and, and their friends. And this is something that's talked about, not just as part of my job as a researcher, but as a mother, um, and, you know, uh, talking to teachers on a daily basis, because we know that they're, that our children are tuned in to, um, the national rhetoric that they are listening. And, you know, I'm, as a parent, I try to you know, discuss that dialogue and control some of that narrative within my space um, and to ask them, you know, how do they feel about it? And, you know, these are really tough discussions that we have on an ongoing basis. Um, so, you know, as a, but, and I feel lucky that I do know the research. Um, I know these are discredited things that are being talked about uh, regarding, you know, LGBTQ content in schools that they might not be helpful, but we know that they are when we create these inclusive spaces that they are, um, that they help LGBTQ young people thrive. So yeah, these are discussions I have to have every day. That's Renita Nath at the Trevor Project. Coming up, a huge honor for some legendary musicians. Is it worth it? Let me work it. I put my thing down, flip it and reverse it. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. China has now joined the U.S., Germany, and Japan as one of the world's top vehicle exporters as the number of Chinese auto exports jumped by more than half over the last two years. CBS's Elizabeth Palmer on whether that means Americans could soon get the chance to drive a vehicle made in that nation. Shanghai's first auto show since the end of zero COVID offered a glimpse of the future. Almost every car here was either hybrid or electric. 
Over the past five years, China's automotive exports have more than tripled. Until now, they've mostly gone to developing countries, but that's changing. Geely, the Chinese company that owns Volvo, has the U.S. in its sights with a whole new concept and brand, Link. Alain Visser is its CEO. Let's sell almost like a Netflix of the car industry, a monthly subscription. For a flat fee of about $600 a month, which covers maintenance and insurance, drivers can lease a Link car and back out anytime. And the Link app lets drivers share their vehicles when they're not using them for cash back. We have now some customers in Europe who actually gain more on sharing than they pay their monthly fees. It's a bold initiative, especially now given the frosty state of Chinese-American relations. Are you fighting anti-Chinese prejudice in the States? Are you anticipating that being a factor by the time you get going? Yeah, absolutely. But he's confident consumers will buy in, Chinese-owned or not. The real concern is politics. I think what worries are more is, is the political movement that may happen in terms of import barriers, etc. The U.S. is one of the toughest car markets in the world. And now two things appear certain. The road ahead is electric. And the Chinese are coming up fast in the rearview mirror. I'm Elizabeth Palmer in Tokyo. As the U.S. celebrates National Small Business Week, President Biden is giving a huge honor to the owner of a Minnesota restaurant. WCCO-TV's Marielle Mose with more. An unexpected customer walked through the doors of Afro Deli and Grill in St. Paul Wednesday morning. Second gentleman Doug Emhoff and other Biden administration members met with the owner, Adiraman Kahin, who just earned the title of National Small Business Owner of the Year. I would have never imagined this day would come. Kahin immigrated to the U.S. from Somalia in 1996 and brought a cuisine that was missing in Minnesota, serving up traditional African foods fused with Indian and Mediterranean flavors. For the East Africa, for the Somali community, and for the people of color, that there is no limit in this country if you work hard. One way that Afro Delhi stayed open during the pandemic is through community service work, something that impressed the second gentleman. They started doing meals during COVID, and they fed thousands of people during COVID, and what's amazing is they're still doing it. On the tour, Emhoff saw Kahin's hardworking staff putting together 600 meals that will be brought to a low-income apartment complex in downtown St. Paul. Seemed like a real pillar of the community kind of business, and I mean, a real reliable lunch spot. <laughs> After the excitement of the visit, it was business as usual for Afro Deli, who serves a busy lunch crowd during the work week. It's a favorite spot for Claire Thomas. I mean, really exciting for the business. It seems really well deserved. Kahin says this honor motivates him. This will move me to open more restaurants and to be more engaged, especially with our community. Little kids in Iron Mountain, Michigan, are also drilling down on business. WZMQ-TV's Amy Doyle. In Dickinson County, when life gives you lemons, you launch a business and sell lemonade for the county's very first Lemonade Day. At least for the fourth graders in Mrs. Mazziniak's class, who are getting ready to launch their business plans for this Saturday's Lemonade Day. These students are focusing on what it means to be an entrepreneur in a small community. Anthony Lorenzoni and his team are focused on customer service. Setting a goal, like what you're going to sell. We live on a very bus busy street, so we um, thought that maybe we could get more customers. 
In the classroom, the responsibilities of the teacher are to teach financial literacy to the students. So we're teaching them that three part, the spend some, save some, and share some. Ava Ringel is focused on giving back to her community, a quality that runs in her family. We're gonna do it at the YMCA because my dad is the CEO there. We get to donate money to uh, businesses who like help out. Local lenders have offered small loans to get the kids rolling on their small business. The biggest part is to donate or to share to a local charity. So some of the kids have chosen the animal shelter or the cancer closet. Really what we want is for the kids to be able to build our community to be better. And in addition to the thoroughbreds taking the track at Saturday's Kentucky Derby, fashion is serious business because you've got to see and be seen. I'm past the tired point. I'm on a pure adrenaline right now. Sacrificing sleep for sewing. Jenny Fannin-Steele is cranking out hats and fascinators at Forme Millinery in Butchertown. It's all full speed and the days go by very quickly and there's just a lot to do and a lot going on. She's working around the clock to help people who are scrambling to get their derby looks together at the last minute. Some people reached out to me this morning and were like, hey, you want to go to derby? I'm like, sure, let's do it. So, yeah, a little bit of a last minute thing, but that's okay. I'm just going tomorrow. Over at D's in St. Matthews. We ran into a sea of rushing shoppers. We got my dress and then we went to Von Mar last night to get her some shoes and then I decided I wanted some and then we got our hats and we're just kind of finalizing all of our looks. Yeah. Thankfully, some stores have special derby hours to accommodate those in a pinch. If you're still looking for that perfect last minute derby look, Jenny Fannin-Steele recommends finding something that fits and is comfortable. But remember, your hat is your statement piece, so whatever you choose, just make sure you feel confident. At this point, it doesn't matter if you get your hat from a milliner or make it yourself. You'll just need to act fast if you want to be fabulous. That's Madeline Carter at WLKY-TV. Finally, paying tribute to some legendary musicians making up the 2023 class of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Let me work it. Missy Elliott is the first female rap and hip-hop artist to enter the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Cheryl Crow gets a place in the hall. So does the legendary Willie Nelson. On the road again. Just can't wait to get on the road again. And the late George Michael. Because I gotta have faith. Others getting in, Kate Bush, The Spinners, and Rage Against the Machine. The induction ceremony takes place in November. Steve Kathan, CBS News. That's it for the Weekend Roundup. Thanks for listening. We want to get your feedback. Send us your thoughts and story ideas to Weekend Roundup at cbsnews.com. As always, you can find the program online on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Sarah Fishman is a technical supervisor at Alan Peng provides production assistance. Tara Lipinski is the executive producer. Have a great week. I'm Allison Keyes, CBS News. If you like CBS News Roundup, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. 
Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Behind every successful business is a story, and some of them might surprise you. Like how Chobani's first yogurt factory was discovered on a piece of junk mail, or how the founder of the multi-million dollar cosmetics brand Drunk Elephant was told by everyone, including her own mother, that the name sounded like a dive bar. I'm Guy Raz, and on my show, How I Built This, I talk to founders behind the world's biggest companies to learn the real stories of how they built them. In each episode, you'll hear entrepreneurs share moments of doubt and failure and talk about how they were able to overcome them on their way to the top. How I Built This is like a masterclass in innovation and creativity from the people who've done it all. Follow How I Built This wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. For more deep dive and daily business content, listen to Wondery, the destination for business podcasts. With shows like How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more, Wondery means business.